I'm Bryce Miller, and this is Talking Atlas. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Talking Atlas. I'm bringing you a solo episode this week that is my second biannual low market roundup, which bears a couple of pieces of explanation and one piece of news, which is not something that I'm used to giving on Talking Atlas. Usually we report on things that have happened elsewhere, news that someone else made. I have small personal news. In any case, approximately half a year ago, I did my first biannual low market roundup. Low Market is my segment on edhrec.com. That's edhrec.com. The website is pretty well known in the Commander community as a database for decks. It scrapes information from... That sounds kind of weird. Scrapes is a, an uncomfortable term, even if it is probably the computationally accurate one. It scrapes data from sites like Tapped Out, Deckbox, places where you can publicly view people's deck lists. It started as a bot on Reddit, eventually transitioned to the site, and it is a database. It provides you information about what decks with a given commander might usually look like, or what decks use a particular card, or what does the average elf tribal deck look like? What commanders are common for elf tribal? What does the average super friends deck look like? What commanders are popular for super friends? What are cards you only ever see in super friends? By now, the site's pretty advanced. There are a lot of queries you can make to help inform your commander deck building. Since a little over a year ago, there has been an articles section of the site. And that is not robotically generated. That is made by people, like myself, who I can confirm is not a robot. I'm definitely, definitely not a robot. And my segment, Low Market, is focused on budget commander deck building. If you've listened to Talking Atlas for any period of time, you probably know how much I like commander deck building. At one point in time, I did have a deck for every color identity. And this has given me a very nice breadth of knowledge of how to build budget decks, because I know what cards are cheaper, I know what cards make good substitutes when you are not looking to get maybe the more expensive, slightly more efficient version. Mostly, when making that many decks and not having an unlimited budget, you need to have those skills eventually. So doing a budget segment seemed right up my alley. At time of recording, I am on the cusp of publishing my 26th low market article, and at least for now, here's the news, it will be the last. I've been writing this column for a little bit over a year, it's been a really great time, but in the past couple months, I've moved into a full-time job as a game developer, which is absolutely wonderful, but also means that I have a little bit less time on my hands, and the time that I do have, sometimes I want a little more capacity to not have more work to do. As a result, I am going to be not so much retiring as putting on hiatus my low market column. There's absolutely the possibility that I will pick it up again in the future. So to start this all off, if you would like to see more low market, do let me know. Drop me a line through Twitter, email, I'll mention that towards the end of the episode. Because I do enjoy doing it, and if there's a market, if you will, out there, then it would be my pleasure to pick it up again later. Now, getting back to the point of this particular episode, because that news wasn't the point. My first biannual low market roundup was me talking about the first 13 decks that I wrote about for my low market article. Well, not 13 decks. It was 13 articles. Some articles did involve more than one deck. I am now going to take you step by step through decks 14 through 26. 26 at time of recording isn't actually out yet, but it will be very shortly after I drop this episode. So I'll give you some cliff notes. If you hear this before that's released, you'll have something to look forward to. 
First up, we have the Borborygmos Splendid Combo. As a dedicated Johnny Spike kind of deck builder, I tend not to enjoy decks that are good but rote. I really like finding weird sideways strategies and optimizing them. In some cases, I just like highlighting something that is really, really janky, and this is pretty janky. Probably jankier than my average. The commander for this deck is Borborygmos Enraged. He's 4 red red, green green, that's a hefty 8 mana, for a 7-6 legendary creature Cyclops with Trample. When he deals combat damage to a player, reveal the top 3 cards of your library. Put all land cards revealed this way into your hand, and the rest into your graveyard. Then he has an activated ability. Discard a land card. He deals 3 damage to target creature or player. On this podcast, Borborygmos is notable for being a commander that Jacob's pretty fond of. Still hasn't built, but we've been over that Jacob has a hard time building decks sometimes, despite his strange recent proclivities towards it. In a backwards kind of way, this deck was inspired by a deck of my own that I talked about in the Sideways Strat section for this article. The Sideways Strat is a sometimes subsection where I talk about a weirder take on a deck that I'm building. And that's saying something because they're usually pretty weird decks. This Sideways Strat was Dune Brood Mirror Pool combo. Now the combo in question for both of these decks involves a land called Mirror Pool. It enters the battlefield tapped. It has tap, add colorless to your mana pool, two and a colorless, tap, sacrifice Mirror Pool, copy target instant or sorcery spell you control. You may choose new targets for the copy. The next activated ability is four and a colorless, tap, sacrifice Mirror Pool, create a token that's a copy of target creature you control. This land seemed really fun and maybe not ripe for abuse, but definitely abusable. There are a number of effects that can reanimate all of your lands. The most straightforward one, and the only instant or sorcery that is in mono green at time of writing, and by writing I mean recording, because I write these articles but I record a podcast, is Splendid Reclamation. Three and a green for a sorcery. Return all land cards from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped. The recent Rivals of Ixalan did give us a second copy of a similar effect in Mono Green in World Shaper. It's a creature that when it dies, returns all land cards from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped. The main issue with World Shaper is you would need to add a sack outlet onto this already not very good combo. The last part of this combo is Amulet of Vigor. It's one mana for an artifact. Whenever a permanent enters the battlefield tapped and under your control, untap it. So with enough mana, Mirror Pool, Splendid Reclamation, and Amulet of Vigor, you can cast Splendid Reclamation, copy it, sacrifice a bunch of your lands to an effect like Zurin Orb, or any free land sack outlet. There are enough of them out there, especially in green. Then, the copy of Splendid Reclamation resolves. You return all of your lands to the battlefield tapped. Amulet of Vigor untaps them. Then, you have Mirror Pool again, and presumably, so long as you made mana from your lands, enough mana to activate it to copy the original Splendid Reclamation still on the stack. In this manner, you could easily generate infinite mana, so long as you have enough mana to activate Mirror Pool over and over again. Then there are plenty of lands that have Enter the Battlefield abilities that would help you win the game. A very simple one is Sunscorched Desert, which is a land, it enters the battlefield and deals one damage to target player, and also taps for colorless. The sideways strat that I mentioned was with Dunebrood Nephilim. Dunebrood Nephilim is black, red, green, white for a creature Nephilim, not a legendary creature note. It's a 3-3, and when it deals combat damage to a player, you create 
a 1-1 colorless sand creature token for each land you control. Doombrew Nephilim is not legendary, but is one of those things that is often house-ruled as a commander. Kind of, it should have been legendary. So if it's a card you want to use as your commander in your playgroup, talk about it. Ask people. See how they feel. Besides providing a different commander with a land-centric ability, what being this color combination provides is access to effects like Second Sunrise. Second Sunrise is one white-white for an instant. Each player returns to the battlefield all artifacts, creatures, enchantments, and lands that were put into their graveyard from the battlefield this turn. This is the kind of reanimation that white usually gets. It's a kind of temporary, only if it happened this turn kind of reanimation. This does a couple of things that are very nice for this particular combo deck. One is that it gives us more copies of effects like Splendor Reclamation. It's worth noting that while Second Sunrise doesn't return the things to the battlefield tapped, Mirror Pool itself does still enter tapped, so for the particular Mirror Pool combo, you will either need Amulet of Vigor or some other way of repeatedly untapping a land, like for example Stone Cedar Hierophant. Stone Cedar Hierophant is too green green for a creature. You can tap her to untap target land, and whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, she untaps. So really, in the Mirror Pool combo, she has a weird way of acting as a backup creature and green version of Amulet of Vigor. Next, we have Mare Soul Charge Counter Combo. The blue-black-red pre-con in Commander 2017 was Wizard Tribal, but I fixated not on the Wizard Tribal Commander, but on Marisol the Pretender. Marisol the Pretender is one blue-black-red for a 4-4 legendary creature human wizard. When Marisol the Pretender enters the battlefield, you may exile an artifact or creature card from your hand or graveyard and put a cage counter on it. Marisol the Pretender has all activated abilities of all cards you own in exile with cage counters on them. You may activate each of those abilities only once each turn. I love Marisol because when I first saw this card, I did not know how to parse it. I knew there were weird, probably broken things you could do with it, but I just couldn't figure out which ones. Having only had a few days to look at what other decks existed, I decided to go in a very different, much like Borbrigmos, pretty bad direction, and that is a charge counter theme. There are plenty of artifacts that through triggered or activated abilities can have charge counters on them, so I said... What if I use Mersol as a charge counter repository? I reasoned that you could use effects that are efficient to build up charge counters, and then also use those charge counters for abilities of other permanents that usually would put charge counters more at a premium. The principal combo that I eventually came up with involved the cards Spike Shot Goblin, Chimeric Mass, and Spike Shot Elder. The spike shots are redundant pieces of the same combo, more or less. Chimeric Mass is X mana for an artifact. It enters the battlefield with X charge counters on it. Activated ability 1. Until end of turn, Chimeric Mass becomes a construct artifact creature with this creature's power and toughness are each equal to the number of charge counters on it. The spike shots have each different abilities that involve dealing damage to target creature or player equal to their power. Spike Shot Goblin is 2 in a red and has red tap to do this. Spike Shot Elder is a single red, and has one red red to do this. This means that, with enough charge counters on Marisol from other sources, you can cage Chimeric Mass, cage one or more of the Spike Shot cards, make Marisol an XX where X is the number of charge counters on him, and then each turn, chunk someone for maybe like 10 damage. A slightly simpler combo involves Magistrate's Scepter. 
It's three mana for an artifact. Four tap, put a charge counter on it. Tap, remove three charge counters from Magistrate Scepter. Take another turn after this one. It should be extra turn by modern wording. All you need are activated abilities that get you three or more charge counters in a turn to have infinite turns. I found that this Marisol deck was a convenient excuse to use some of my favorite cards, and those are the TR hyphen mages, Trinket Mage, Trophy Mage, and Treasure Mage, which respectively, when they enter the battlefield, search their library for a one or less mana artifact, a three mana artifact, and a six or more mana artifact. Finally, one of the weirder interactions that I found while working on this Marisol deck involved crew effects on vehicles. There was one vehicle in this deck, Mobile Garrison, because it can help untap Mersel. The weird interaction is, if we cage a vehicle, the crew ability is an activated ability, and it says, essentially, this permanent becomes an artifact creature with power and toughness equal to what it defines at the bottom right. For Mersel, activating a crew ability, it will not change his power and toughness, but it will make him an artifact, which actually is relevant in this deck, because there are some cards that will only let you put charge counters on artifacts. Continuing my habit of, for some reason, doing Grixis decks. I don't really like Grixis that much as a color combination, but I've managed to do four or five weird Grixis decks during my low market segment. I don't know how that happened. In any case, when we got to Ixalan, I made Beckett Brass Rogue Tribal. This might be weird to you, because if you recall the card Admiral Beckett Brass, you know that she is Pirate Tribal. She's one blue-black-red for a 3-3 human pirate. Other pirates you control get plus one, plus one. At the beginning of your end step, gain control of target non-land permanent controlled by a player who has dealt combat damage by three or more pirates this turn. There are two cards that made this weird deck idea function. One of them is from New Phyrexia, and that's Xenograft. It's four and a blue for an enchantment. As it enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Each creature you control is the chosen type in addition to its other types. The more recent, and usually more efficient and better version, is Arcane Adaptation from Ixalan. Tuna blue for an enchantment. As it enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Creatures you control are the chosen type in addition to their other types. The same is true for creature spells you control and creature cards you own that aren't on the battlefield. Arcane Adaptation is often phrased as a bluer, cheaper conspiracy, but for the purposes of this deck, the card conspiracy doesn't work. For those unfamiliar, this is a card by the name conspiracy, not a card with the type conspiracy as used in Conspiracy and Conspiracy Take the Crown. Conspiracy is three black black for an enchantment. As it enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Creature cards you own that aren't on the battlefield, creature spells you control, and creatures you control are the chosen type. The main difficulty here is that Conspiracy doesn't say in addition to. Xenograft and Arcane Adaptation add types. Conspiracy overwrites. The idea for this deck is that it can function perfectly fine as a rogue tribal deck. But if you were to play Arcane Adaptation or Xenograft and Beckett Brass, you can make all of your rogues pirates and they can do a slightly different kind of steely thing. And I thought that was pretty fun. But with this concept, Conspiracy explicitly does not work. You could include it, just in case if you really wanted to pivot to using pirates, but I feel like I more often want to have an enchantment that I can play on curve when I need to, and have it not ruin a strategy later. 
Thanks to Lauren Block, there is a little bit of support for Rogue Tribal, and it's primarily through a mechanic called Prowl. Prowl is an alternate, generally cheaper, cost for a spell that says you may play a card for its Prowl cost if you dealt damage to a player with a creature that essentially shares a type with the card in question. The vast, vast majority of Prowl cards are either creatures that are rogues or tribal cards, tribal sorcery, tribal enchantment, whatever. Actually, I don't think there are any tribal enchantments with Prowl, beside the point, that are of type rogue. There are a couple that have multiple typings, like for example, Sink Drinker Bandit, which is a goblin rogue, and that also can be cast for its Prowl cost if you dealt damage with a goblin. Three of my favorite Prowl cards are, one, Notorious Throng, three in a blue for a tribal sorcery rogue. It has a Prowl cost of five in a blue, I believe this to be the only card that has a higher Prowl cost. Create X11 Black Fairy Rogue creature tokens with flying, where X is the damage dealt to your opponents this turn. If its Prowl cost was paid, take an extra turn after this one. Next is Thieves' Fortune. Tuna Blue for a tribal instant, Rogue. Prowl cost for a single blue. Look at the top four cards of your library, put one of them into your hand, and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order which, if I'm not mistaken, is pretty much exactly the card Impulse. Well, for two mana, it would be Impulse. For its normal cost, it's a more expensive Impulse, but for its Prowl cost, it's a cheaper Impulse. And finally, there's Knowledge Exploitation. Five blue-blue for a tribal sorcery rogue. Prowl, three and a blue. Search target opponent's library for an instant or sorcery card. You may cast that card without paying its mana cost. That player shuffles their library. Looking at my timestamps here, I probably need to move a little bit faster because I'm only through three of the decks. Next up, we have Ramos Super Friends, which is funny. I actually have done two Ramos decks, and honestly, I completely forgot <laughs> that this Super Friends deck was headed by Ramos because I personally have a Super Friends deck that is headed by Horde of Notions. Horde isn't the best Super Friends commander, but I've found that it is a distinctly non-threatening creature to most people, which means they don't target me as much. In any case, Ramos is 6 mana for a legendary artifact creature, Dragon. He's a 4-4 flying, and he says, whenever you cast a spell, put a plus 1 plus 1 counter on him for each of that spell's colors. Remove 5 plus 1 plus 1 counters from Ramos, add white white, blue blue, black black, red red, green green to your mana pool. Activate this ability only once each turn. I have been wanting, which is quite a fun combination of tenses, to do a budget Super Friends deck for a while, because budget for Super Friends usually means a very different thing than budget does usually, or than it even does for low market. For low market, without fail, my decks end up being around $60. On the low end, I think some have been maybe 45. On the high end, usually it's about 70. But when I put my deck builder's cap on and start making a deck from the ground up, almost always I finish it up and it's in that $60 range. That just seems to be a pretty comfortable, achievable budget range. Now, if you're going for a more extreme budget approach, I know that I could bring it down further. Having that baseline also means that I can make certain judgment calls. If there's a $5 card that I know is really, really good for this deck, and I'm a little bit under what I think is a normal budget, then I will sometimes include that. The thing about Super Friends decks is, 
Planeswalkers are really expensive. By the way, a Super Friends deck is a Planeswalker-themed deck. I should have mentioned that. I don't like to assume those things. Doing a little bit of poking around with some of EDH Rex features, I determined that your average five-color Progenitus Super Friends deck, Progenitus is white-white, blue-blue, black-black, red-red, green-green, for a 10-10 legendary creature Hydra Avatar with protection from everything, that deck costs upwards of $1,000. And a big chunk of that is a handful of very expensive planeswalkers like Karn Liberated, and a lot of expensive lands like Shock Lands and Fetch Lands. So for this deck, I wasn't aiming for a $40 to $70 budget, I was thinking more around $100 to $200, which is, as we've established now, significantly cheaper than the average Super Friends deck. And this was a really cool deck building challenge, because instead of saying, here's this theme, what are good cards that I can get that don't happen to be expensive, I actually started by looking at Planeswalkers, sorting the list from cheapest to most expensive, and picking as many of the cheap ones as humanly possible. I quickly found that it was pretty efficient to have an artifact sub-theme, because some of the least expensive Planeswalkers, people like Sahili Rai or Duretti's Scrap Savant. I went slightly further afield in my budget for Tezzeret the Seeker because he has tremendous combo potential. He's 3 blue-blue for a legendary planeswalker, Tezzeret. He enters with 4 loyalty counters. His plus 1 is untap up to 2 target artifacts. His minus X is search your library for an artifact with converted mana cost X or less and put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. And finally, minus 5, artifacts you control become artifact creatures with base power and toughness 5-5 until end of turn. Tezzeret can very easily combo with the Chain Veil. The Chain Veil is 4 mana for a legendary artifact. At the beginning of your end step, if you did not activate a loyalty ability of a Planeswalker this turn, you lose 2 life. For tap, for each Planeswalker you control, you may activate one of its loyalty abilities once this turn, as though none of its loyalty abilities have been activated this turn. In other words, you get an extra activation of your Planeswalkers. Tezzeret and the Chain Veil combo with cards like Astral Cornucopia and Everflowing Chalice, which are artifacts that generate mana based upon the number of charge counters on them. They're not very efficient to get lots of charge counters on them by casting them, but in a Planeswalker deck, you do want to play Proliferate effects. Proliferate says you can choose any number of players or permanents with counters on them and give them another of a counter already there. The combo then goes like this. I have out an Astral Cornucopia. I use Proliferate Effects until it can generate 5 or more mana, or really 4 or more mana. I use Tezzeret. I activate the Chain Veil to get an additional activation out of all of my Planeswalkers this turn. I generate mana from Astral Cornucopia, or maybe I use the mana from the Cornucopia to activate the Chain Veil. I plus 1 Tezzeret to untap the Chain Veil and Astral Cornucopia. If Astral Cornucopia is generating 4 mana, then I can get infinite activations of any non-Tezzeret Planeswalkers I control. If Astral Cornucopia is generating 5 or more mana, I can generate infinite mana. Part of the reason that I included this combo is because ending a game with a Super Friends deck isn't especially easy, and making it budget made that even harder. A classic Super Friends card is Doubling Season. 4 and a green for an enchantment. It essentially doubles all counters and tokens that you get. And that means that when your Planeswalkers enter the battlefield, they enter with twice the loyalty counters, and many of them can use their ultimate ability right away. 
some of those will end games on their own. But doubling season is $50. I'm not going to include a card in our deck that is somewhere between a half and a quarter of our budget. Having a combo like this Tezzeret Chainvale combo gives us a few more reliable outs for a game. Lastly on the Super Friends deck, as a sideways strat, I included a Maze's End. I guess package is appropriate. Maze's End is a land that enters the battlefield tapped. It taps for colorless, or you can pay three, tap, and return it to your hand to search your library for a gate and put it onto the battlefield tapped. Then if you control all 10 gates, there's one for each Ravnican guild, so they all generate one or the other color of mana, you win the game. It's an alternate win con you can only play in five color decks, and I have one in at least one of my five color decks, so I really wanted to put it here too. Next up is perhaps my favorite, most original, and arguably most popular low market deck, and that is Saskia Ball Lightnings, with the article name, I'm very proud of this, Lightning Strikes Twice. This deck concept originates from a single card, Ball Lightning. Ball Lightning is red, red, red for a 6-1 elemental. It has Trample, it has Haste, and at the beginning of the end step, Sacrifice Ball Lightning. Ball Lightning was first printed in The Dark, a magic set from 1994. As a reminder, this game started in 1993. And it has become an iconic subset of cards, I suppose. Every now and again, we will see a high-power, low-toughness creature that has trample, has haste, and dies or exiles itself at end of turn. In essence, it is a burn spell given creature form. And I knew there were enough of these that you could potentially build a deck around them, but I wasn't sure how, so this was me figuring that out. Eventually, I decided upon a commander in Saskia the Unyielding. She's black-red, green-white, for a 3-4 legendary creature, Human Soldier. She has Vigilance, Haste, and when she enters the battlefield, choose a player. Whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, it deals that much damage to the chosen player. This seemed like a pretty straightforward choice. Aggro strategies in Commander are very bad, partially because if you target down one player very aggressively, other players are going to dogpile on you and kill you. Aggro strategies are even worse when your creatures are completely ephemeral. As such, Saskia is a good choice to either accelerate one player's death or spread the love around to damage them all faster. The first component of this deck was pretty obvious. Find a bunch of ball lightning variants and put them in. A method of pushing our ball lightnings a little bit further were effects like from Flame Shadow Conjuring. Flame Shadow Conjuring is three and a red for an enchantment. Whenever a non-token creature enters the battlefield under your control, you may pay red. If you do, create a token that's a copy of that creature. That token gains haste. Exile it at the beginning of the next end step. These temporary copy effects don't usually die at end of turn, which means we can't use death triggers as much with them, but it does mean that for a little bit more mana, we can have two ball lightnings instead of one. The next primary section of the deck were effects that involve high power creatures. A lot of these come from Naya in Shards of Alara block, because Naya's mechanic was five power and greater matters. A traditional ball lightning is usually six power, so it plays pretty well with cards like Paleoloth, which helps us recur a creature card from our graveyard when a big creature enters the battlefield under our control. 
it means that our ball lightnings can essentially go back and forth. There are also a number of creatures or enchantments that deal damage, scaling off of power usually, when a big creature enters or a big creature dies. Warstorm Surge, where ancients tread, stalking vengeance. These two will help get us extra damage out of our ball lightnings. The majority of ball lightnings are in red, and then there are a handful in green and maybe one or two you get when you diversify into white. But what white-black really get us in this deck are reanimation. We have a creature whose explicit purpose is to punch someone, then die. Do that for enough turns, and it is absolutely worth it to reanimate them all at once. One of the funnier outcomes of this Saskia deck is all the people on Reddit that I saw talking about it and asking for critiques on their lists and building them, and I would always poke in and go, Hi, I'm so glad that you love this deck, because I wrote about it and I'm really fond of it, but I haven't actually built it yet, I should really do that. This shouldn't surprise you, but I perpetually have a pretty long commander deck build list. This is pretty high on it in fairness right now, but I haven't built a new commander deck in a while, partially because I've been playing so much horde magic. Okay, I really need to pick up the pace here because I am talking way more about these decks than I did last time around. Next up is Greatness at Various Costs, which is a Karametra deck. Karametra is three green-white for a 6-7 indestructible legendary enchantment creature god. As long as your devotion to green and white is less than 7, Karametra isn't a creature. Whenever you cast a creature spell, you may search your library for a forest or plains card, put it onto the battlefield, tapped, then shuffle your library. This deck came primarily out of a desire to use a new card from Hour of Devastation called Uncage the Menagerie. X green green for sorcery. Search your library for up to X creature cards with different names that each have converted mana cost X. Reveal them, put them into your hand, then shuffle your library. So you can get one, one mana creature, or two, two mana creatures, three, three mana creatures, and so forth. My enjoyment of packages in Commander is well documented, that is, subsets of related cards that are usually connected by a way of searching for them, and I wanted to find a way to make a package-style deck using Uncage the Menagerie. This too proved to be a fun deck-building challenge, because rather than just say, here's my commander, here's my theme, start finding cards, I wanted to find useful cards in this deck at various converted mana costs, specifically creatures. So instead of going through this section by section looking for tutors and card advantage and on-theme cards, I simply went for those effects, stepping through converted mana costs of creatures who have them, that you can search up with Uncage the Menagerie and related effects like Yisan Wandering Bard and Birthing Pod. The running joke of this column, apparently, was that there's so much artifact and enchantment removal in green-white creatures of various converted mana costs that I think every step in our mana curve, except for maybe one, had enchantment or artifact removal in it. Next up, we have a weird take on Eldrazi Tribal with Intet the Dreamer. Intet is 3, blue-red-green, for a 6-6 legendary creature, Dragon. She has flying, and whenever she deals combat damage to a player, you may pay 2 and a blue. If you do, exile the top card of your library face down. You may look at that card for as long as it remains exiled. You may play that card without paying its mana cost, as long as Intet remains on the battlefield. I'm a big fan of the color combination red-blue-green, also known as Teamer, and I do personally have a Riku Eldrazi deck, which 
is not necessarily the best commander for Eldrazi Tribal, but I do like Riku a lot, and he's kind of my first deck. But I was thinking about how I could make that more budgety, and it occurred to me that Intet's a great way to free cast really high converted mana cost things. And at least at time of writing, I didn't see a single Eldrazi Tribal Intet deck on EDH rec, so it seemed like a void that was reasonable for me to fill. The only real challenge of building this Intet deck was finding the appropriate Eldrazi for the theme that didn't break the bank, because the Eldrazi Titans, the original ones at least, are quite expensive. It helps that Emrakul the Eons Torn is banned in Commander, but the other two, Ulamog the Infinite Gyre and Kozlek Butcher of Truth, are not exactly cheap. On the bright side, there are enough Eldrazi across the, I guess what, now four sets that have featured them? You had Rise of the Eldrazi, Battle for Zendikar, Oath of the Gatewatch, and Eldritch Moon. So yes, four sets that featured Eldrazi. There are enough to make a deck work in really most color combinations, so long as you are including at least two non-white colors. Next up were two weeks of silver-bordered commander decks. This came right around the release of Unstable, so of course everyone was a Twitter with the possibilities of using silver-bordered commanders. The first deck was one of the pretty bad ones, bad with the asterisk of, it's not just that it's not powerful, it's also a very weird strategy. And it was a multi-tribal deck headed by Dr. Julius Jumblemorph. He's two green-white for a legendary creature, nothing else on his type line, but he has an ability that says he's all creature types. Also, whenever a host enters the battlefield under your control, you may search your library and or graveyard for a card with Augment and combine it with that host. If you search your library this way, shuffle it. He's a 4-4. With both of these commander decks, I aimed to make something that had a silver-bordered commander, but no silver-bordered cards in the 99. I've outlined before that I have kind of three tiers of commander as it pertains to silver-border, and it informs how I would communicate with a table when I sit down. For the most part, if I pull out any black-bordered deck with a black-bordered commander, I will say, I'm playing this. And unless someone goes, oh, I hate that commander, or ooh, I hate that strategy, really emphatically, I will probably just play that deck. Then, if I had a silver-bordered commander heading a black-bordered deck, I would say, hey, is it alright if I play this? Because the silver-bordered commanders are at least predictable. You know someone's commander when they sit down. So... Someone doesn't need to guess at what is in the 99 of my deck. Now, going further, if I had a deck with silver-bordered cards in the 99, for me, that's less of a, hey, can I play this, and more of a, let's all play with decks of this type. Because then we are all on the same page that there are wacky, weird things in our decks that are not predictable. This deck is in some ways derived from a couple of thoughts. One was a pauper commander deck that I attempted, that is, a deck headed by any uncommon creature with a deck of all commons, and it was five color changelings, which are all creature types, and effects that are for only creatures of a specific type, or scale off of creatures of a specific type. I also know that a friend of a friend had a similar concept that was in Commander proper. In Just Green White, it's a little bit harder, because you have so many fewer changelings. Ultimately, though, Having what amounts to a changeling as your commander does make things a little bit better. If you have Bone Slice Sliver to give your slivers, aka your changelings, double strike, your commander having double strike at least means you guarantee impact from that card. 
The second Silver Border deck was a chance for me to use a theme that I've been wanting to make for a good while, and that is Juggernauts. Juggernaut is a very particular creature type in Magic. Generally, a Juggernaut is an artifact creature with reasonably high power. More often than not, I think they have higher power than toughness, and they attack each turn if able. The original Juggernaut is called Juggernaut. Four mana, it attacks each turn if able, it can't be blocked by walls, and it's a 5-3. The idea for this deck was to make it functional with two commanders, a silver-bordered commander and a black-bordered commander. The silver-bordered commander was Grusilda Monster Masher. Three black-red for a legendary creature zombie villain. She's a 4-4. Combined, enchanted, and equipped creatures you control have menace. Three black and red tap. Put two target creature cards from graveyards onto the battlefield combined into one creature under your control. The idea of this whole combining thing is that you sum their names, their powers, their toughnesses, their abilities, everything. On the black-bordered side, Rakdos, Lord of Riots. Black, black, red, red for a 6-6 legendary creature demon with flying and trample. You can't cast Rakdos, Lord of Riots unless an opponent lost life this turn. Creature spells you cast cost one less to cast for each life your opponents have lost this turn. On Grusilda's side, she gives you recursion for your big, not terribly efficient creatures. And on the Rakdos side, you get very efficient ramp. So they will play a little bit differently, but operate pretty well under the same pretenses for this theme. I had a notably odd sideways strat in this episode, and it dovetails with my thoughts that I provided when talking about Spike, the card, in I believe it was our third or our second going to go with our second episode about Unstable. And the sideways strat was entitled Main Decking Inclusivity. Continuing here at a mad clip, there's my second Popper Commander double feature, or as I like to call it, Revenge of the Popper Commander double feature. In my first 13 review, I had a segment where I wrote about two Popper Commander decks, Gilder Baron, who doubles counters, and Extricator of Sin, a kind of self-mill aristocrats zombie tribal deck. It's really cool. I had another two decks for this one. There was a reanimator deck that is five color Zuberas with Composite Golem. Composite Golem is six mana for an artifact creature Golem. He's a 4-4 with Sacrifice It, add white, blue, black, red, green to your mana pool. The Zubera are all spirits with also the subtype Zubera that when they die, you do an ability that scales off of the number of Zubera that have died this turn. And the abilities triggered are the same as the abilities on the Hondans. You might recall the Hondans from also my first 13, where I did a Hondans-focused Enchantress deck. This deck also features Changelings very heavily, so that you have more Zubera to scale the abilities of your actual Zubera. The second deck is a pretty straightforward Dredge self-mill deck with Nyxweaver. Nyxweaver is one black-green for a 2-3 enchantment creature spider with reach. At the beginning of your upkeep, Put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard. One black green, exile Nyxweaver, return target card from your graveyard to your hand. This deck is grindy as hell. Some of its primary win conditions included Undergrowth Scavenger and Soul Shriek, the former being a creature, the latter being an instant, that involve power that scales off of the number of creatures in your graveyard. Next up, another fun novel idea that I can't claim full responsibility for, Samut Archer Tribal. In all of Magic, there exists one card 
that references Archer as a creature type. It's Greatbow Doyen from Morningtide. Four and a green for an elf archer. Other archer creatures you control get plus one plus one. Whenever an archer you control deals damage to a creature, that archer deals that much damage to that creature's controller. A close friend of mine has expressed interest in archer tribal for a long time, and we once spent an afternoon workshopping what a deck might look like. This was me taking that concept, revamping it, and putting at the helm a more recently printed commander that didn't exist at the time, that also synergizes pretty well with it, and that's Samut. Among other things, Samut grants your creatures haste, and has an ability to untap a creature you control. A lot of archers in magic have tap abilities that damage flyers, or attacking creatures, or blocking creatures, or in some cases, hit a creature unconditionally, which means Samut does a lot for them. Probably the weirdest part of this deck is to make a lot of these archers work, you either need to give them flying so that the green archers can shoot them out of the air, or force attacks or blocks so the white archers can shoot them off the battlefield. This strategy is probably a little bit more rough than, say, Saskia Ball Lightnings, but it's still a fairly original idea that I want to construct for myself. Okay, we are so close here. Second to last, Ramos Artifact Tokens. Shadows over Innistrad set had a mechanic called Investigate. Whenever a card says, you investigate, you create an artifact token called a clue. With two, sacrifice it, draw a card. Since then, we've had Ixalan block, with its emphasis on treasure tokens. After all these treasure tokens, I figured that we had enough non-creature artifact token cards that I could make a deck themed around them. That is what this turned out to be. Understandably, important components of this deck are things that make treasure, and things that make clues. There also are a handful of cards that care about their specific artifact token type, because there seem to be enough generators of each of them that I wouldn't be in too much conflict. On top of that, it's a pretty straightforward artifact deck. Artifact tokens mean you can generate a lot of artifacts, and the game is a little bit more friendly with letting you generate them as compared to artifact creatures, because they're not going to deal as much, you know, damage, since they aren't creatures. And at long last, that gets me to my forthcoming final low market article for now, asterisk. That's going to be Sliver Hivelord Ascension. I was thinking about what would be the briciest Bryce thing that I could write about for my potentially last column. The answer is my ongoing deck building gameplay project, Ascension. I've discussed it on the podcast before, and there may come a time where we talk about it in more detail. Ascension is based off of a Redditor who looked at the card Zergo Bellstriker, got tired of everyone insulting it as a commander card, and built a commander deck for Zergo that started as all commons. And every time this person got a kill, they would add a tick mark to their sleeve, I think. And at certain intervals of tick marks, they would unlock things like uncommons in the deck. Rares, Mythics, Sleeves, and eventually I believe their goal was to incrementally foil the deck. I am doing this with a 5-color Sliver Hive Lord Voltron deck with a side of combo. Among my favorite cards in Magic are the Blank of the Blank Cycle from Shadowmoor and Eventide. They're all enchantments, auras, one hybrid symbol, and then zero or more generic mana. It gives the equipped creature, usually, plus one plus one and something, if it's one color, and plus one plus one and something if it's another color. Silver Hive Lord then presents a five color commander with inbuilt protection 
So hopefully your Voltron investment doesn't get got before it's time. This deck was inspired by a Popper Commander deck that I made, so that actually made the job a lot easier. I knew the strategy worked with a deck of all commons. Currently my deck sits at rares, uh, and I'm two kills away from unlocking mythics. At rare, I was able to put in a slight combo element with Jeskai Ascendancy, which when you cast a non-creature spell, untaps your creatures and lets you draw a card and discard a card. Since this deck also kind of acts like a multicolored Spellslinger deck, it is possible to achieve a lethal combo with Jeskai Ascendancy. If the idea of this deck sounds interesting, or if you like the idea of Ascension in general, then I strongly suggest you check out my soon-to-be-present last article on edhrec.com. Again, that's edhrec.com. And in a roundabout accelerating fashion, that is my second biannual low-market roundup. If you would care to tell me whether I should or should not later resume my low market column, I encourage you to find me on Twitter as walking underscore atlas, or you can email us at info at opalnebula.com. For more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, opalnebula.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash, wait for it, opalnebula. Regardless of the medium, I always enjoy bringing you fine folks some fun magic content, and until next time, happy planeswalking. <laughs>